Oh, I just, I got to thank you, Ben, Eka, just for being an active part of it today. And here's the reason why. I, I like to thank everyone for doing these types of things. Um, you were a blessing on Wednesday with your message. That was phenomenal. And because we, none of us were born Christian, you know, we had to accept our adoption in, into God through Jesus Christ on our own. That's our free will. None of us were also born without, with an unlimited comfort zone. And so I know better than most uh, what it's like to go outside of your comfort zone, but to do it for something profitable, which is for God. And so I know it's, it's been a little while for you uh, as far as like a full sermon with nursing homes and things like that. So I don't want that to get lost. I know you spent hours and hours on your notes. And as a matter of fact, I think you prepared two lessons. You kind of brushed up the one or went in a totally new direction from Wednesday to Wednesday. Whatever the case is, it takes a lot of work. And then uh, Ben and just everyone here, you guys would have had many legitimate excuses not to show up, yet you did. And so I don't want that to get lost in the weeds. I'm just so very thankful for that. Um, there was a, a moment in time when I was just vacuuming this morning and trying to like tidy up a little bit that I thought, hey, no one might show up and that's okay if they don't. I was still going to record myself and try to be somewhat faithful and <laughs> throw it up on YouTube and <laughs> look at the fake people in the audience, but um, we don't have to do that. And so, and, and also we know that if everyone else was in better health, that they'd be where we are right now. So they're not, I know a lot of other churches that are either dying or dead. And I know a lot of people personally, it, just that I know personally, that come up with every excuse in the book not to show up. And we really come up with excuses about why we can be there. So just one single unified um, service this morning, just because of everything from weather to sickness. And uh, so... We'll get through this. It'll be, you know, about an hour. Uh, Elijah, Raymond, uh, this is for you guys uh, just as much as it is for the adults. And I did that on purpose because I was hoping that you guys would be here. So our message today is not out of one book, but it's or out of one book from the book. But we're going to do sort of a cursory overview of something that's very appropriate to where we are right now in the month of December as we're starting to flip that page and roll into the new year. And of course, it makes a lot of sense. And as I was preparing things, I wanted to focus on the new year. But I think we all know there's that magnetism as, as uh, both spiritual and fleshly beings to try to do sort, some sort of like a name it, claim it, prosperity, health and wealth gospel. And hey, it's a new year and you guys can do it. Come on, let's go. And that's all well and good. But that's really reserved for the locker room or for, you know, a Tony Robbins type speech on a, a stage with a big, big projector. But... I also want to let everyone know that there's nothing wrong with being excited about our faith, about making very good plans, solid plans based on Jesus Christ, and then acting on those. As a matter of fact, um, our pastor, who not only full-time shepherds this church, but has another full-time career, does the same thing. And so he was using his time profitably when he was in a hospital bed to um, write up a 2021 game plan so that he could be successful in his chosen pursuit as a career. And then use that to support his family, to pay the bills, because we still have concerns of this world. So here's what we're going to do today. The name of our message is Out With The New and In With The Old. It's not a typo. Out With The New and In With The Old. So a new year doesn't really mean a new you. And here's the reason why. You should be who you are. And you can't reinvent yourself, but God sure can. As a matter of fact, I, I made a note in here. I came up. And now I don't know if I can find my handwriting, but the fact is we are supposed to be, we're called to be, and we're given a promise that we're a new creature, but not because we came from a motivational retreat or because we watched an awesome YouTube video or we watched Rudy on Netflix. It's because we're a new creature in Jesus Christ. 
And I can't find it in my notes, but I luckily turned to the page here. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Yes. And it, it's going to read, Therefore, if any man, this is anybody, be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And that's really that line of demarcation in our lives to where we have a birth and death, just like our own world history is demarcated by B.C. and A.D. That should really be the timeline of our lives that we can look back to and point at. Now, I'm including myself in this circle of people. I don't know the day, the time, and the hour of when I receive my salvation. I remember the circumstances, of course, or I, I wouldn't be able to have a salvation testimony. But I don't remember, I remember where I was, what I said, the prayer that I said to God, how sincere it was, and how he changed my life. However, I don't remember, you know, what the calendar said. And that's okay. A lot of people actually have a testimony to where it's, it's very calculating, it's very specific, but I just don't have that. But we know that we are a new creature. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And just by way of introduction, before we get into our prayer here, cleverness is often cancerous. And I'm going to explain that, but the wheel doesn't need reinvented, and wisdom doesn't need to be reimagined. Christians need to separate ourselves from the hubris of man's newfangled foolishness. I'm going to dismiss a lot of that today. And cling to the holiness of God's enduring, unfailing, unchanging wisdom. So we know that God's the arbiter of truth. He's the progenitor of not only wisdom, but knowledge, because one needs action behind it. You can have all the wisdom and all the knowledge, but if you don't put action behind it, it's not profitable to anyone, including yourself. So I'm going to try to make a really compelling case today about why we shouldn't be looking for that next fad, whether it's within Christianity, whether it's within uh, the Baptist community, whether it's within science, or anything else. You know, you talk about fad diets, it's something new every time, but there's also nothing new under the sun. So without getting ahead of myself, I'm going to say a quick prayer, and then we're going to get into the meat of today's message, which has three parts. Dear God, thank you so much for those who are faithful. And by that, I, I definitely don't mean the people who just happened to show up this morning. I just mean all the people of this church and then to a greater degree, the church. And you know them. You know them by their name. Just thank you so much for them, the people who are faithful. And God, as we close out this year, and I know time means nothing to you, but we operate within it. You don't because you created it. I just pray that you would give us that spirit of newness that we would remember or continue forward in our new creature status. So God, we just want to forge ahead for you. And I know that we can't do that under our own power. We will fail so many times that we'll end up getting desperate and in despair. But let us follow after the pattern of other faithful saints in your word. And even after the pattern of our own pastor who's just days away from uh, heading back north and coming home. God, that we would always remain optimistic because no matter what trials and tribulations and storms we weather here, we're going to stand before you and fellowship with you in eternity. So this just makes everything else nothing. God, I pray that you'd be with me in this message this morning and that we would just grab onto something, one or two lines, and keep it for this new year. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, cool. So we know the value of leaning into the wisdom of those older than us, you know, our elders. And the Bible shares a lot about that. As a matter of fact, I even touched on this last Sunday about how from the Garden of Eden... Just one or two very, very short generations removed is when men began to call upon the name of God. Because those spiritual leaders, the fathers, the grandfathers, and the great-grandfathers, uh, would instill their knowledge of God. 
And it's really cool. So if people say, well, why didn't they call upon God in the very beginning, you know, in, in order to try to prop up their failing model of dispensationalism? Well, it's because faith by sight really isn't faith, and God literally dwelt among men. And so uh, that's what I want to talk about today, is leaning into the wisdom of others so that you can simply do one thing. You can use their hindsight as your foresight. Because we don't, just like I talked about a moment ago, not having to reinvent the wheel, we don't have to repeat the mistakes that other people have made when God's given us something so ironclad that this book, what we're able to flip through today, will actually still be here after the earth is destroyed. That's how important this word is. And so God's preserved it, and we can trust in it, and we certainly should. So let's apply all the things that we receive from this book to our life on a daily basis. So based on that, why not expand that sensible strategy of, of relying on those before us, whether it's parents or just older people, and leverage the accounts of men from the Bible? Or better yet, you know, there's always levels. There's good, there's better, there's best. Better yet, why don't we go to the author himself of the Bible? Because he never had to make any mistakes to show us that pattern, that standard set that he put before us. Uh, we're going to talk about three things today. And I alliterated it with P's, and it took some time, and I was a little sneaky with my last P, so we could get it in there, but it's going to be this. We're going to talk about failure, success, and to finish up with, we're going to talk about combining the two to make a foolproof strategy, and we've got three P's to illustrate that for you guys this morning. Pilot, Pontius Pilot, there's two P's there. Paul, and then lastly, but certainly not least, as we wrap up failures and success into a better model, the patriarchs. And I didn't get, uh, you know, I know Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob. I know those are traditionally well, who we refer to as patriarchs. But um, when we wrap up this morning's lesson, I'm going to talk about the patriarchy in general. Just about godly men who were fathers and who passed along what God shared with them to their children. Um, Abram to Abraham, things like that. And then we're even going to look at that big 90 degree pivot in people's lives when God came into their life and radically amputated that old man and gave them that new man. Which, of course, an awesome, we're talking about Paul, an awesome example of that is Saul to Paul. And it was so dramatic for him, as we've seen elsewhere in the Bible, that he even had to change his name. Talk about being a new creature. It's almost like getting a new birth certificate. You know, hey, who's this guy? Oh, you've met him several times before. That's Paul. That's not, no, 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 no. I know that guy. He looks familiar. He must have a twin brother, Saul. He used to persecute people, run into churches, and use his uh, gangs of of mercenaries to throw people in gulags. That's, no, 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 that's not. And that's what God can do for us. So there's never a point of no return. Let's talk about failure. Let's start there. Let's save the worst for first. And we'll start with who has failed in the Bible. If you would, please turn to Matthew 27. And we're going to read 11 to 18. Right alongside our three different bullet points today, we're going to have three chunks of scripture rather than really doing a lot of bouncing around. As a matter of fact, Aside from our three headline uh, bullet points here, I only have four other scripture references because each scripture reference is so illustrative of everything else going on around with failure, success, and, and a good, solid strategy. We don't really need to go elsewhere, but we are definitely going to dive into the Word. So you guys are there. Matthew 27, 11 to 18 reads as follows. And Jesus, there's a great example to start with, stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. Man, I always love Jesus' replies in the Bible. <laughs> in verse 12 it reads, And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders. Well, here we see some elders 
And they're not very wise, are they? He answered nothing. So Jesus understands this is an A and B conversation. They need to see their way out. Verse 13. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they, uh, they witness against thee? And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Now at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner. Sort of like a executive pardon, if you will, like Trump's doing right now. Whom they would. So uh, Pontius here, our, our man of uh, our first bullet point, is basically like, hey, we're going to have a big feast. Let me give you guys a gift. You get to choose whoever you want to be released from prison. And uh, what he's doing now is rather than deferring to his own judgment as the governor, someone that was appointed to oversee the people, what's he doing? And this is, this is a foolish mistake. He's, he's deferring to the people. And, uh, well, we'll see what happens here, won't we? So verse uh, 16. And they then, or they had a notable prisoner, that's a key word, focus on that, called Barabbas. Therefore, when they gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, the people? Barabbas, or Jesus, which is called Christ. And then it wraps up here in verse 18. For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. So secretly, Pilate is, he's fanboying for Jesus over here. He's definitely in Jesus' corner. But it only goes to a limit, doesn't it? Because he wants to make sure that uh, I want to give lip service to God, and we all do that from time to time as Christians, and really our goal should be to lessen that, to make our words really seasoned with salt. But what he's doing in this instance is, I want to win-win. I'm the governor. I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to release Jesus. Maybe I'll get a couple extra little diamonds in my crown in heaven later on. But, man, I also want popular public opinion. These are the people that placed me in office. You know, I don't, I don't want to end up on one of those crosses beside Jesus. They'll crucify me. So what he's doing here is he's being very subtle. He's being very crafty. And it's almost as if, you know, behind me here in this room was a prison cell. We got Barabbas. We got Jesus. And I'm trying to make this really compelling case for you to release Jesus. So then you just believe that it was of your own free will. But we can see here by the posture that uh, Pilate is taking, he really wants to release Jesus. And he even says, hey, all you congregation of people out here, you know, gathered before the courthouse or the governor's mansion, wherever they are, meeting with Pilate. I know why you delivered this guy up. It was just pure confirmation bias. You hate him. Oh, hey, we got the elders over here. That's cool of you guys to show up. Thanks. Whoa, the chief priest. Look at those long robes. And he knows that they're showing up for a certain reason. It's because ultimately you want to crucify this, this guy. Now, I did say earlier, remember or sort of, you know, hold your thumb on that word notable. And here's the reason why. Pilate failed to follow his compass. I mean, he did for a little while, allowing the Judean passengers to hijack his plea for leniency, ultimately surrendering to their terrorist demands to condemn and murder an innocent. Think of that word innocent with a capital I, because we're, we're speaking about Jesus. Pilate was encircled by the infection of sin. And I thought that was an appropriate analogy to use because of what we're dealing with today. We're encircled by a lot of things uh, in America and abroad. As a result... He, Pilate, exhibited symptoms of that same sickness that people were infected with. And we're talking about the sickness of sin. The chief priests and elders who accepted Judah's refund, remember the pieces of silver? The refund at their feet. They weaseled their way doctrinally into this rescue device that allowed them to use the silver without offending their consciences. Oh, uh, hey, 
This was used as a bribe to imprison the Son of God. Um, we can't put it in the treasury. You know, uh, hey, guys, listen, I got it. Let's take a vote right now. Uh, why don't we use it to buy that potter's field? You know what I mean? And, and it's not going in the treasury. We're not going to offend God. But we still get to do something that we want. I mean, look at the, the evil motive, the underlying motives that propped up this horrible idea. So the people of Judea, right in front of Pilate, who we're talking about, they had a blood lust to see the blameless man tortured to death. And here's the most important part. Not only were they crucifying and condemning Jesus Christ, but they were doing it in exchange, this horrible, uneven swap with a notable criminal. So I think of Barabbas almost like as the, uh, the John Gotti of uh, the Middle East at this point in time. So they know who this guy is, and they're going to release their hate and contempt for Jesus they're going to release a known criminal, and we don't know the, the extent of Barabbas' crimes, but they are going to release a known criminal into the general population so that they can watch him hang. A man who literally would wash the feet of his own disciples, who had no sin, no guile, would be nailed to a cross with long nails through his, uh, uh, his arms here at the wrist. I mean, he got tortured to death. And, and ultimately, he, they, were, they were trying to... Uh, given to Satan's demands because of their underlying motives, but they were really bringing about the fulfillment of prophecy, weren't they? So God brought something good out of something evil. Now this, and I mean, I, I got to pause and, and make a connection to this, and I'm sure maybe all of your minds have already wandered there, but think about what's going on today. And I'm not talking about an isolated pocket of a little uh, jail cell like in Mayberry. I'm talking about federal penitentiaries where they're releasing prisoners back into the general population. Where does that come from, this horrible exchange of good men for bad? Well, it's actually coming from way up that totem pole of decision-making, the governor's offices, right? And they're pressuring the, the sheriff's offices and the federal prison systems to release these people because of COVID, right? So we're going to release known felons, people who are dangerous, for a, a disease, so-called, that has a 99.98% survival rate. Well, every single person behind those iron bars has been there because of the due process of the American justice system. We know they're dangerous, and we're going to put them out into society for something that we can't quite put our thumb on the pulse of because the stats change every single day. By the way, the truth doesn't fear investigation. Pilate permitted, ultimately, just fast forward to the end, the sinless Savior to be slaughtered so he could keep his position of popular public opinion. Today we see much more of the same, but much worse, like I just talked about. And I don't know who these maniacs are that are, are really running the government and who sits around a board table and says, hey, all in favor, like we just talked about, all in favor of this measure, say aye. What's the measure? Oh, we're just going to open up the uh, gates of the prison and we're going to let these people go so they don't get the sniffles. Oh, yeah, I'm all for that. And here's, here's a point that I really do want to make. It's not directly associated with what our text is today and what our lesson's all about. But we think the, of the government, at least I do, right? I'm not going to throw my opinions on you guys. But we think of them almost as either a benevolent or maybe in worst case situation, an indifferent type of a power structure. Hey, you know what? Sort of like the Ivan Drago and Rocky IV. If they die, they die. No big deal. <laughs> I would take it 14 steps further than that and actually say the way that they behave. You know, hey, well, don't judge a book based on its cover. 
Well, well, let's look at what's on the inside, the contents. The way that they behave toward us, almost as enemies of the state, as a collective of people, there is so much disdain and hatred that they have for the average common citizen. Imagine releasing the plague or the scourge of sin from a, a, a confined prison cell out into the public. So, but does that cure COVID? Does that cure the spread? No. So what have we just done? We've doubled up on the danger to the general public. What happened in the book of Genesis? He said, you'll be as gods. Well, they weren't as gods. They just took their, their perfection, their sinless nature, and they added a sinful nature to it. There's nothing new under the sun, you guys. So we're taking a look at failures in order not to repeat the same mistakes. So they're making us, you know, wear these slave wear across our mouths and restricting oxygen to our brain. And, and, and that's always been what they want to do, right? Dumb down society enough that they basically have to rely on us to provide their every need. And I think of it this way. These un unelected people that worship the golden calf of social justice and they bow before the God of what's called intersectionality. You know, the, the more, uh, it's a fancy word for saying, the more disadvantages you have, your skin color, uh, your gender, where you came from, where you were born, uh, if your parents raised you properly, they're basically clinging to all these little straws to make their own little straw man in life about why they're not able to succeed. That's called intersectionality. I'm a homosexual uh, black person. Oh, okay. Well, then you get like 14 points on that scoreboard of intersectionality. People just need to take responsibility for their own actions. And as an aside here that's worth mentioning, no one cares enough about your amount of melanin in the top layer of your epidermis to actively work behind the scenes, wringing their hands like evil little masterminds to keep you from scoring high on your SATs or your ACTs or getting into the college that you want or doing well at an interview at a job that you want. We don't care. And that is the height of not only hypocrisy, but arrogance to say, hey, my skin's a little bit darker than yours, or maybe my eyes are shaped a little bit different. I know you guys in your little club meetings you have to make sure I don't succeed in life. They've been convinced they can't succeed, and therefore it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So that is a great way to look at failure. Pilot caved. And it's sad. Well, let's kind of turn the tables. Let's look at the other side of that coin and look at success and how the Bible describes success. Because I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to say that when I use that word in our mind's eye, we all sort of creatively put together someone uh, exiting their mansion, tossing their keys over to a valet, getting into the back of their extended Rolls Royce and driving off to work or vacation, whatever the case might be. Well, what does the Bible say about success? Because our own definitions as uh, human beings change every single day. Success has 157 mentions in the Bible. Uh, not the word, but basically if you're just talking about good success, uh, what it takes to be a good Christian in life, and to finally appear and hear those words, thy good and faithful servant. Now, Paul, who once was Saul of Tarsus, he actually wrote 13 in a depending on who you ask, 14, you know, and here's my little argument. Well, the, 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 the case, whether it was 13 or 14, he was a major contributor who was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that's why we're here today in 2020 on a Sunday morning talking about him, because he was memorable. Paul was truly notable, as Barabbas was, but for all the best reasons, because he made a choice. And we're going to talk about that choice. So Saul, the apostle, not to be confused with uh, Saul, you know, the king who was David's frenemy, on and off again sort of thing. 
Saul was so angry with Christians in, in his early life, he was very happy to oblige the men stoning Stephen by holding their coats. This was a verse I read several times over to make sure I was reading it right. And it's, it's a well-known little proverb, but I want to make sure that when I get up here, I really put these things to the fire. And if, if I share it, it's defensible from Scripture. Now, something I want to do also to set the stage for Paul here in our uh, example of success is if you would go to Acts, the book of Acts, and chapter 13. And I'm going to read four verses that pack quite a wallop about who Paul was. And then we're going to talk about who he is or who he became. So the book of Acts in chapter 13, and then four verses, 8 to 12. And it reads like this. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. So it tells you right here what his intentions and motives are. Then Saul, who is, is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O fool of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways uh, of the Lord. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon me, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. So he's looking for someone to basically be his crutch or his cane. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believing, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord, there's a lot going on here, but the two things I want to focus on is the doctrine of the Lord and the fact that this is still when Paul was called Saul. As a matter of fact, you're seeing that transitionary period coming on to where the Bible starts to refer to him as Paul. Uh, you know, you got your little brackets or parentheses there. But this was done through the Holy Spirit. This was not done through Saul. Saul was a very evil man. And the other thing that I want to look at was after this happened, first of all, it was immediate. There was an immediate change. Salvation. And the, the onlookers, the people that were watching this happen, this man who was, who was smitten with uh, blindness, they didn't say, wow, Saul, you've got some special powers. How do I get superpowers like that? No, they actually leapfrog right over Saul, and they knew who the power came from. What does it say? The doctrine of the Lord. They were astonished, but even these men, these onlookers, this audience here, they knew who the power came from. And the power always comes from one or two places either Satan or more specifically his minions as the prince and power of the air here of earth, or from God. Those are our two lifelines. And Jesus makes that really clear in the Bible where he shares a scripture that says, you're either for me or against me. You know, good luck sitting on the fence for too long. You're either going to fall off to the left or to the right. And that's what we're seeing here. So uh, actually, we're very close to it. Please go to Acts 22. We're going to read three verses here. It's going to be 19 to 21. And... Why don't we fill in any blank spaces that remain here for the, the purpose of looking at a great success from the Bible of that transition from Saul to Paul. So in uh, chapter 22, verses 19 to 21, it's going to read like this. And I said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. So these are men that believed on Jesus, by the way. These are men that are truly saved. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed... I also was standing by, so he's close to these people who are casting stones at Stephen, and consenting unto his death. So Paul is basically saying, I wanted this guy to die. As a matter of fact, I want it to be an efficient death. 
I want to make sure this guy takes it, draws his last breath. And kept the raiment of them that slew him. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. So what's Saul slash Paul, what's he doing here? He's coming up to this wild, foaming-at-the-mouth, rabid-type mob who are in the middle of stoning Stephen, and he's like, ah, yeah, all right, you guys get him. Hey, warm that throwing arm up. Anybody need me to hold their coat? I sure will. So he's literally becoming a coat rack for these people so that they can basically take it off and they can really get a good wind-up. It's sick. And that's what happens when you give in to that sickness, is you're going to take one cent and it's going to fester into a whole lot more. And I don't know if it's a common thread enough that you guys will remember it, but so many messages we've had from other men in the church, Daniel, Gabriel, Eka, that have keep, continued to keep rolling toward us, um, most notably, probably with Gabriel's message last Sunday, sin has a big splash zone, and you really can't control it. We think of sin, our little secret sins, or Gabriel called it America's pet sins, when he was speaking about drunk driving specifically, as just something that harms us. Oh, I can drive. Come on. I live real close. I've made the trip a thousand times. Our sin has a big splash zone, and it definitely affects more people than just us. And Paul decided to turn his life around, and I'm really excited to get into that. So Saul, who was accursed with arrogance and entitlement, which in my opinion are really the pillars of the murderous attitude in Saul's early actions in his life. But look, let's fast forward to the end and see a really happy ending. We see the same spirit of antichrist or anti-Christian vitriol clearly today. And that's really part of that whole Me Too generation movement, hashtag, whatever you want to call it. It is that spirit of antichrist, still kill and destroy. Well, what are they trying to steal? Joy, what are they trying to kill? Well, let's look, because it's babies. Here's what I mean by that. So the Me Too generation is playing hokey pokey on scientific, political, and philosophical ponderings from gender to abortion and everything in between that spectrum. And it's a wide spectrum. But here's what they do. They sort of kidnap or they invoke Christian ideals and methods when it suits them. Let me put a, a point on that for you guys. Because it's only Christian ideals uh, like soul liberty. I'm in charge of my own body. That's autonomy. Self-defense. You can't own a gun. That's dangerous. But every politician that's in office is surrounded by three or four bodyguards. And that's okay. They have their own set of rules. Or how about this, you guys? Marriage. Well, marriage is a biblical institution. And marriage by any other name, we might be okay with that. I don't really care who gets what tax incentives. I didn't look at the love of my life and my bride on that day as her veil was flipped back. And I thought, 12% less to Uncle Sam. We did it. That was not my motivation. So you can call it whatever you want, but don't reach your hand into the Bible pull out marriage, which he created as, as the, the model for the family, and then wipe everything else off, Ooh, but then hold on to that one thing. It's mayhem. It's moral mayhem. So believing a baby isn't a baby in the womb, but, but then somehow it's fairy dusted with uh, you know vague fuzzy math and humanhood once it comes out the womb, and even some would argue even past that, it's still not a viable life. We arrive at their absurd conclusion. My body, my choice. Usually amplified by being screeched into a bullhorn, you know, from behind a, some sort of like a poster board with a little platitude cliche on it. But wait a second, um, Miss My Body, My Choice, you know, uh, darkening the door of a Planned Parenthood. 
let me just ask you a couple quick questions here for information's sake. I'm curious, guy. Do you have 20 toes? Ah, man, that would be quite a deformity. You have two central nervous systems? And wow, God gave you a second blood supply and beating heart. Wait a second. No, those aren't yours. Those are your babies. So sorry, not your body. It's God's choice. I hope no one out there really has 20 toes. As a matter of fact, this is so important. I want to read three passages to you guys. You don't have to turn there, but we're talking about something that goes far beyond the context and the confines of this message. It's very important, which is life. It's, it's, it's special. It's sacred. I'm going to read to you uh, from Job, Genesis, and Mark. So we're going Old Testament and New Testament. And what am I trying to uh, prove from God's word on this? A life is a life from conception. <laughs> let's not make it more complicated than it is. Let me read these. And you guys tell me at the end of these three verses, you know, among over 40,000 from our authorized version of the preserved word, if you think a baby in the womb is the same human that it is outside of the womb. So Job 10, verse 18 reads, Wherefore then hast thou brought me forth out of the womb. Oh, that I had been given up the ghost, and no eye had seen me. Job 10, 19. I should have been as though I had not been seen. I should have been carried from the womb to the grave. Now, this is very important because this is Job in his anguish, his despair after learning about the death of his family, the collapse of his finances. Everything had just been pulled out from under his feet, and he's literally on his knees in ashes. What's he saying here? Job is saying, and this really sets the stage for the following two verses, but if I was still in my mother's womb, I had never seen the light of day. And for all those sick, evil, twisted Peter Ruckmanites out there, I had never taken my first breath. Well, he's still a baby. Well, Aaron, listen, those aren't necessarily Jesus's words. That's just Job in the throes of despair. The guy would probably say anything. I mean, he's been through it, Aaron. Oh, okay. Well, you know what? Just forget that because I guess... Some of the word of God is inspired. Let's look at another verse. Genesis 25, verse 8. Then Abraham gave up the ghost. Well, there's a great parallel. And died in a good old age. See, Aaron, listen. There we go. Abraham was a real boy. He died at an old age. He was outside of the womb. So it's only inside of the womb. He was full of years and was gathered to his people. So, oh man, I kind of just shot myself in the foot there. Well, no, I didn't, because it's not an and-or, it's an and-and, and the Bible's defining itself here. So let's go ahead and finish with this grand finale here from Mark 15, 37. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. So this is showing us that inside of the womb, outside of the womb, this is, because we know that Jesus died, he descended down into hell for three days, he wasn't corrupted, but he definitely spent his time down there atoning for us. But this giving up the ghost is a phrase that undeniably, unequivocally, in every single position that you find it in the Bible, whether it's poetic or literal, however you want to look at it, dissect it under a microscope, this is the difference between life and death. And so they are definitely viable human beings from conception. That's why John left in the womb. I mean, when, when uh, Mary came in and Jesus was developing in her womb, he was like, boy, isn't this great? And I love how the Bible just hits the pause button for a second to throw that little gem in front of us so that we can really admire that and then we can flesh out what life really means. So Saul didn't get stuck on stupid as the foolish often do. 
And that's not an insult. I, I literally mean stupid as a literal word. Ignorance, the lack of knowledge and the application thereof. So by declaring there is no God, because we know Psalms 53.1 says the fool hath said there is no God. Here's what happened to Saul. He drifted into the light, rather quite uh, literally, really, rather than using Christians to light his gardens on his faithful journey to Damascus. And what a beautiful story, you guys. Saul became Paul and a worker of miracles rather than a wicked old man. Well, what was that change? It was Jesus himself who identified himself. This is going to be our last chunk of verses. We got five verses in Acts chapter 22. I'll read them for you guys. You may already still be there or have a thumb there, but Acts 22 verses 3 through 8. And here's how that reads. Uh, actually, a little copy-paste error in my notes. I'm going to go to Acts 22. All right, Acts 22, we are in 3 day. And it reads, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Sicilia, uh, Cilicia, sorry, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, as ye are, all are this day. So he's appearing before like-minded men. And I persecuted this way unto death. So Paul's being very honest about who he is and where he came from. He's not hiding from his, his past transgressions. Binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. He didn't care who they were. He just cared about who they worshipped. Verse 5. And also the high priest doth bear me witness and all the estate of the elders from whom also I received letters unto the brethren and went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. Everything that he's going through, I mean, this guy's traveling, he's going around, he's seeking to destroy, he's hunting down Christians. Verse 6, and it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh into Damascus, you can probably see it out in the distance, about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell into the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now that's important. I thought Saul was persecuting people. Verse 8, And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? He knows who it is. And the Lord said unto me, Arise and go into Damascus. Keep going where you've been going, Paul, but I'm going to change your mission status. And there it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. So Paul had to be faithful to this commandment to find out what his new mission was. Verse 11, And when I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand that sounds familiar we just read about that of them that were with me i came into damascus so let's pause there for a second and then i believe i still have to finish up on verse 12. Uh, i went i went a little bit further uh let me finish up with 11. and when i could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand of them that were with me i came into damascus so here we have something that we just read about earlier being stricken with blindness but still continuing on the same thing happened to Paul in Damascus. And just that phrase, you've heard it a million and two times if you've heard it once as a Christian. We all know about that, the road to Damascus. Well, what does that represent? This is Paul's turning. This is the point where he heard the call of Jesus Christ because if you continue reading, you guys, and I really encourage you to, you know what happens. The people with him do not hear the voice of God, the audible voice of God, but they see the light. How cool is that, that we can be that light bearer 
for Jesus and people can see us, it's going to fall on deaf ears to some people and other people are going to be completely transformed like Paul was. And as a matter of fact, as Paul's great test before he did that pivot in his life as a Christian, he was blind, which means what? It's going to make it a lot harder to get to the bedroom, let alone all the way into Damascus off into the horizon if you're blind. Well, what did Paul do? Just kind of like we did this morning, coming to church. He say, oh, man, that's going to be a lot of work. I, don't, I can't even see the road. I got these guys with me. The food I brought on my donkey is going to spoil. I, I'm going to have to go slow moving. He didn't think of all the excuses not to do it. What did he say? Hey, guys, uh, listen, I can't see who's going to help me. Okay, all right, let's go. We got to go to Damascus. He continued forward, albeit at a slower pace, but he still continued forward. What are we getting ready to do? We're getting ready to be confronted right in the face with a new year, and there's going to be a new set of challenges I'm not Debbie Downer at all, but I got to tell you, it's not like when you turn the page on the calendar, hey, all things are made new. Whew, it's a good thing COVID's gone. And, <laughs> and that's not going to happen because that Trojan horse has been invited in and the gates have been swung open. So guys, I just want to set that stage for both failure and success so that we can sort of intermingle the two to avoid one and really embrace the other to cling on to it. Because we're going to finish up with the patriarchs and we're going to focus on one. But we can, which really means that we should, and I'm talking about Christians, learn from the failures and success of others. Unfortunately, as evidenced by thousands of years and counting today and tomorrow, of people making the same mistakes from antiquity to modernity, where we find ourselves in 2020, as a species, we just really seem to be cursed by sin. And here's why. We are so quick to decide and we're very slow to discern. We should flip that upside down and stand it on its head. We should really come to decisions prayerfully and very patiently and allow God to open a door or close one. So as 2020 ends, it's clear. This year earned a place, well earned, near the top of the historical heap. But listen, don't forget, our spiritual ancestors saw much, much worse. Eka talked a lot about this on Wednesday, endure to the end as a good soldier. You can still be a soldier for Jesus Christ and be an unprofitable one, the guy that kind of warms up the bench or he's in the back because the buddies don't want to rely on him when the bullets start whizzing by their ears. You're still a soldier. You're still putting on the camo, but you're kind of an embarrassment to your regiment. So while there's no new thing under the sun, Ecclesiastes 1.9, I've been using that throughout today's message, I'd caution everyone against naively breathing a premature Sigh of relief as the new year encroaches upon us. Because here's the thing, that whole hoax-fueled, scam-filled year of 2020, it ain't going away. And really, because without a course of correction based on God's guidance individually, me, you, 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 as all of us as individuals, we're not going to make that same Paul, Saul to Paul, 90-degree transition or pivot in our life collectively. We all have to function as individuals. And remember, guys, good starts don't equal good endings. They just don't. You can build up that momentum, but you got to keep moving forward. And die daily. That's something that I really want to pepper in there to you guys. Because if you don't die daily and you look at our events in life as big chunks of time, you can really lose that. I think a lot of times, actually, I, I know this from personal experience. I used to be involved as a nutritionist working with people to help get them in shape. I have often found that people fail within just the first few days of their diet because they think that 
it's an insurmountable goal. Whereas if you piecemeal out an inch of rope at a time, someone about, hey, listen, you know, <laughs> we're not going to radically amputate your lifestyle and what you eat, but we are going to make some small incremental changes. You'll start to notice that more oxygen is going to get into that fire. It's going to ignite the kindling. And then really it's going to start going on its own heat. And that's a biblical principle, a little bit at a time. And we can even see that. Uh, I don't have anything in my notes here, but we can see the fact that Abram to Abraham or Saul to Paul, we can see that good starts don't necessarily have to be so great. I don't think anyone in this room has hunted down people in synagogues and grabbed them by the collar and thrown <laughs> them into jail. But yet this guy was turned around. As a matter of fact, in the, the very good starts don't necessarily mean good finishes as well. We can think of people like Noah. Uh, I mean, the first thing that he did was want to get drunk when he hopped off the ark. We can think about uh, Lot. Uh, when, when he made his, his great fast exodus from Sodom because of the wickedness that had filled that city and he wanted to escape the brimstone. But then what happened? I mean, within days, if you read the Bible in context, it seems like his daughters were devising this perverted plan that he went along with. Why? Because he was drunk. So there's definitely a common denominator here that our stronghold in order to keep us moving forward and that, that progression of progress is Jesus. It's so simple. I mean, it really is simple. And by the way, dying daily to me also means being in the word. Because if you're, if you're not in the Word, you're really dying to your own flesh when you wake up. Because what's the first thing on your mind, or it's definitely the first thing on my mind, is breakfast, answering emails, making sure everything's neat and tidy in the house, you know, heading off to work, being a great employee, a good worker. But what about the Word? you got to die to those ambitions when your eyelids open to say, hey, listen, i got to abide in the vine, and then he's going to give me the power I need to accomplish A, B, C, and so forth throughout the day. So there's no new thing under the sun. That's just a way to say that. So everyone, in closing, I really want you to do one thing as we look at this new year dead in the eye. Purpose in your heart. Daniel 1.8. To act accordingly toward the end of enjoying liberty. Let me define that. I don't mean that liberty granted, quote unquote, by nations or governments or panels of people, but rather the liberty promised in the spirit, brought and brought down and bestowed on us by God. And that's in 2 Corinthians 3.17, which reads, Now the Lord is that Spirit, capital S. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, we might not have the Spirit of the Lord in America. I can make a really great argument uh, about why we don't. But individually, guess what we have? We have the Spirit of the Lord. And just like His Word will never disappear, it will never leave us. And He will never forsake us. So like I started out with, use hindsight as a reference point, but not a sticking point. Don't get trapped in your past or someone else's past mistakes, but use them as a treasure map to hop over that pitfall or to grab a vine and swing across because you don't want to have to circle that wagon and end up beating your head against the wall. We've seen what not to do in God's word. I think that's why God gives us so many examples of what not to do. Faithfully learn from God's accounts of both failure and success and no weapon, whether it's a psychological operation or whether it's literally an M16 pointed at you under martial law here in the land of the free, no weapon formed against you will prosper against you. Now I'm going to close up with this verse and say a prayer. It's in Isaiah 54, 7. It says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light. We talked a lot today about bad substitutions and light for darkness. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them.
So guys, as we turn the page and we come into a new year, don't think about it as a new start. Think of it as nothing more than a continuation of your Christian life. And you can abide in Jesus and you can be very powerful in that mission. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for these lessons that were hard-earned that other people had to learn so that you could then show us. I'm so glad that we have this series of 66 books that never returns void because it's your word and your word doesn't return void. And more so than that, God, I'm just thankful that as we look at something the world gives a, a special importance to, a new year, and there's going to be a ball that drops and they're going to try to put a, a pretty face and some lipstick on 2021. We know what's coming and we certainly know what's not coming, God. And well, I believe and I'll look for the signs for you to show me that it's not normalization. We're not going to go back to where we were because quite honestly, we've been on a, a downhill slide for a long time. So God, I just pray that you'd fill us with your wisdom as an individual, that we would have that individual liberty and that we would be like-minded with our brethren in this church, uh, the Christians in our family, and that we would draw other people into that fold closer to you and that we would see 2021 as nothing more than a blip on the radar and really just a springboard to move forward for your glory. God, we love you. We thank you for all these things and all the things that we just couldn't possibly think of to thank you for the miracles that you've worked. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Well, all right. <laughs> Time for fellowship. <laughs>